Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. Do you believe in ghosts? Is it at all conceivable that the dead seek revenge on those who wronged them? I'm Philip Ellis, and this is Tall Tales, your weekly shot of short fiction on Brum Radio. Our story tonight is a Victorian penny dreadful. This is Mrs. Duranson's Jewels by Ken Preston. One freezing, foggy night in early February, Inspector Arthur C. Behrens of the Metropolitan Police walked along a cramped, shabby alleyway off the Whitechapel Road, a scruffy, barefoot little boy running on ahead of him as his guide. The inspector was in pursuit of the solution to a mystery, a scandalous crime that had shocked the finer elements of London society. He believed the solution lay here, in the slum dwellings of the poor. Sometimes he would lose sight of the unkempt boy as he disappeared into the clammy grasp of the thick grey fog, but then moments later he would appear again, urging the inspector on with quick, insistent whispers. This way, mister! Down here! Quickly! Quickly! Occasionally, Behrens would be compelled to stop as a sudden dark shape appeared through the eddies and swirls of the smog, a ghostly shadow emerging from the mist to become a filthy, bent beggar, wheezing his pitiful entreaties into Behrens' ear, or a haggard old woman offering to sell the policeman a pair of pig-strutters. Behrens dismissed them all, waving them away contemptuously, for he was a dour, tubby little man, and his social graces were sorely lacking in every respect. It was said by his colleagues that his temper was even shorter than he was, but that when provoked he could grow to twice his normal size. "'Down here, mister,' the street urchin said, suddenly appearing wraith-like through the fog and pointing down a side street. Behrens followed the boy down the cramped street. The black, filthy buildings towered over him on either side, threatening to close in on him and squeeze the breath from his freezing lungs. Somewhere in the distance, he could hear a group of men singing a bawdy song set to the tune of a Salvation Army hymn, and a woman shrieking, with delight or fear he could not tell. He passed broken windows, patched up with rags and paper, and his feet sloshed through a foul river of sludge, the underground cesspits having overflowed in the recent storms. They reached a warped, battered door, which the boy pushed open, and entered a dismal little room, lit only by the fire burning in the grate. A woman sat at a table assembling matchboxes, dropping them into an untidy pile on the floor beside her. Her face and bare arms were white as ivory in the flickering light of the fire, apart from the scattering of blue and yellow bruises that marked her flesh. 
Two filthy children sat silently on the floor, their faces blank with hunger. Ignoring the woman and children, Inspector Behrens and his guide passed through the room and ascended a flight of perilously rickety steps to the first floor. Behrens stepped carefully, unable to see much in the poor light. As he climbed, he ran his hand along the damp, mildewed wall to steady himself. "'In here, mister,' the boy said, pushing open a door into a shabby little bedroom lit by a single, sputtering gas lamp. Two rickety, cast-iron beds dominated the tiny room. On one of them lay a white-haired man, covered from his neck to his toes by a stained, threadbare sheet, tucked up under his chin. He was shivering violently. Beside him, on the edge of the other bed, sat a thin, haggard-looking woman, her trembling hands clasped together as though in prayer. A mean little fire burned pitifully in a black grate, providing precious little comfort against the cold and damp. "'Is it the peelers?' the man said, his hoarse, cracked voice penetrating the silence like a knife. "'My name is Inspector Behrens. I believe you have some information about the desecration of Mr. Runson's grave,' Behrens said, still standing in the doorway. "'Yeah, that's right,' came the hoarse reply. "'Molly, let the inspector sit down. There's a good lass.' The thin, haggard woman shuffled between the beds and found herself another spot, and Beren sat down next to the man, who looked up at him from his sickbed with bruised, haunted eyes. Behrens caught the whiff of cheap booze on his breath and stale sweat on his body. Behind the hollow walls he could hear the constant scurrying to and fro of rats. "'My name's Bill Sketch,' the man said, his dry, cracked lips parting to reveal a few rotten, dark brown teeth and a black tongue. Behrens looked at Sketch, at his gaunt face and his shock of white hair. "'It was black as coal yesterday,' Sketch said. "'Ain't that right, Molly? As black as midnight it were.' "'And what happened?' Behrens said. "'To turn your hair so white in a day.' Do you believe in ghosts, Inspector? No, I don't, Behrens replied. Neither did I. Not until last night, anyways, Sketch said. He began coughing, a hacking cough that rattled deep in his chest, flecks of spittle flying from his cracked lips. After a few moments the coughing fit subsided, and Sketch lay back on the bed, gasping for breath, the filthy sheet still clinging to his gaunt body. I was fit as a fiddle, up until yesterday, he wheezed. And now look at me. Now look at me. Sketch gasped for breath for a few moments, his rasping wheeze and the scratching and squeaking of the rats the only sounds in the damp, miserable room. I've seen a ghost, Inspector, he said finally. Seen her with me own eyes, felt a chill touch on me own flesh, and a breath, Inspector felt the breath fluttering across my face and stinking of sickness and death. Sketch suffered another coughing fit, his frail body convulsing beneath the stained sheets. If you please, Inspector, he said, once his coughing had subsided, his voice weaker than before. I could do with a sip of that hot stew that Molly made for me. Behrens looked where Sketch indicated and saw a dirty, battered tin cup containing a thin, watery gruel, in which floated tiny bits of unidentifiable meat and gristle. The inspector picked up the cup, lukewarm to his touch, and held it to Sketch's lips. He sipped noisily at the stew, 
the loud sucking sound sending shivers of revulsion through Beren's body. Now come, come, my dear fellow, he said. All this talk about ghosts. It's no wonder that your nerves are so unsettled. Don't you have something to tell me about Mrs. de Rutsmith? That's right, Inspector, said Sketch, a rivulet of the watery stew running down his chin and onto the bedsheet. I were telling you about Mr. Rutson, how me and Jem the Rake robbed her of all her jewels. Go on then, lad, Baron said. Confess all. After all, that's what they say, isn't it? The confession's good for the soul. Well, I hope that's right. And then maybe I'll get some peace from her. If not in this world, then maybe the next. It were like this, Inspector. Me and Jem, we heard about Mr. Rutson having died and how she'd been buried wearing all her jewels still. Times is hard, Inspector, as I've no doubt you can appreciate, and it seemed a little unfair to me and Jem that some old lady should go to her grave wearing more than I'll earn in a lifetime. Inspector Behrens nodded but said nothing. Everyone in London had heard about the lavish burial. The de Rutson family's enormous wealth had been accrued from their trading company's forays into the African interior, with the whole of the dark continent now carved up between the European countries, the Aronson Trading Company was able to expand, shipping slaves, gold, and ivory to every corner of the world, and so quickly making their fortune. The elderly Mrs. Aronson had taken to parading her newfound wealth by wearing it at every function she attended. Some said she never removed her jewellery at all, not for any reason. This rumour was finally given substance after her death, by the news that she was to be buried in her finest ball gown, her body adorned with her gold and silver bracelets, her necklaces and precious stones. Any fool could have predicted what would happen next. So you decided to desecrate her grave and take her jewels. That's right, Inspector. That's what we did. May God forgive our souls. We jumped over the wall of the de Rutsen estate that night after she'd been buried. It were pitch black, freezing cold and foggy. You could hardly see a foot in front of you, and we stumbled around for a long time like a couple of old drunks. But we found her all right. We found her. She'd only been buried that afternoon, and you could still smell the freshly dug earth. Well, me and Jem start digging, and the digging's easy and goes quick, for the soil's all loose and the spades cut through easy-like. But Jem, he's a bit nervous, and a bit headstrong. And before you know it, he smashed through the coffin lid with his spade. Watch what you're doing, Jem, I says. We'll have half for London down here wondering what's going on with all the racket you're making. We got the rest of the soil off of the coffin, and we lifted that lid up. And there she was, Inspector, all laid out in her finery, like they said she would be. Only. Only. Sketch began trembling again, and he closed his eyes, but only for a moment, quickly opening them as though horrified by what he saw in the dark of his own mind. Well, Baron said, only what? There were her eyes, Inspector, Sketch whispered. She had her eyes open, wide open, and was staring right at us, as though daring us to steal from her. Don't be stupid, man. She was dead, said the Inspector. Wasn't she? She had to be, Inspector. "'Cause even if she hadn't been dead when they buried her, she were now, "'on account of the dirty great hole Jem had bashed in her head "'when his spade went through the coffin lid. 
where Jem was all for giving up right there and then and going home empty-handed. He sat on the mound of dirt we dug up and stared at the old bird, and she stared right back up at us while I convinced him we had to carry on with it. In the end, I had to throw a handkerchief over her eyes just so she'd stop looking at us and we could get back down there and start robbing her. Very brave of you, I'm sure, muttered Behrens. Now come on, man, come on, what about the jewels? Sketch's dark eyes took on a faraway look at the mention of the jewellery. He had stopped shivering now, but still lay with only his head protruding from underneath the stained threadbare sheet. Ah, oh, Inspector, we would have been set for life after pawning that lot. Her coffin were full of gold and silver trinkets, bracelets, gold necklaces, diamond rings, ruby brooches bigger than your fist. Lord knows how she ever walked around all that weight dragging her down like that. It would have tempted an honest man like yourself, Inspector, it surely would. Me and Jem, we set to work and gathered it all up in a bag we brought special, and it were the easiest pickings we ever had. Pretty soon we had everything like, apart from the rings on our fingers. The old bird had rings on all her fingers, every single bloody one. And not just one ring either, but two or three, sometimes even four or five, as many could be crammed on. But the thing was, her fingers had all swelled up, and those rings were stuck where they were. Weren't no use trying to get any of them off. So what did you do? Baron said. I cut her fingers off, one by one, Sketch said, his voice dropping to a hoarse whisper. It were a devil of a job. All I had to do it with was that rusty old knife over there. Baron's looked where Sketch nodded and saw a tiny rusty pocket knife lying on the floor in a pool of dried blood. The inspector shuddered despite himself. And I just had to hack away with it until it cut through the flesh. But the worst bit, the worst of all, were having to break her fingers. The crunching sounds her bones made were something awful. I thought it would wake the whole bloody neighborhood. Baron sighed and said, It's not going to go well with you in court, I can tell you that now. But perhaps the good Lord will have mercy on your soul for confessing your crimes. Now where's your accomplice, Jim the Rake? Sketch bit his lip and said nothing. He was shivering again. He's dead, mister, Molly said. Behrens looked up, surprised. He had forgotten she was there. Dead? Dead? How on earth did he die? He said. His missus found him yesterday with a hole in his head whispered Sketch, just like the hole he bashed in that old lady's head. Live long enough to say Mr. Runson wanted her jewellery back. Mr. Runson wanted her jewellery back, repeated Behrens. How could that be? The poor woman was dead. You saw her with your own eyes. Do you believe in ghosts, Inspector? So you're trying to tell me that Mr. Runson rose from her grave? killed your accomplice, Perrin said. More likely the two of you had an argument, a disagreement as to how your hall should be shared out, no doubt. And you killed Jem, and now you're trying to lay the blame on a ghost. Now come on, man. We'll forget about all that. After all, London's better off with one less of your kind roaming its streets. But what about the jewels, eh? Where are you keeping them? I should have listened to Jem, Sketch said, ignoring Behrens now, a powerful trembling coursing through his body, 
hidden by the dirty bedsheets. I should have returned the jewels like he said, but I didn't. I were too greedy. And last night she came, Inspector. She came and took her jewels back. Come on, man, pull yourself together. You're becoming hysterical. Oh, Inspector, it were like some terrible nightmare, watching that dreadful apparition stand at the end of the bed and dress herself with her necklaces and bracelets and her ruby brooches and staring at me, Inspector, all the time staring at me, just like she had when we dug her up. And in the end, she stood there, all splendid-like in her finery. But she hadn't finished, Inspector. Why, what do you mean? said Behrens. She couldn't, could she? She had no fingers, Inspector. No fingers to put her rings on. Sketch was writhing in the bed now, and the filthy single sheet was falling from him, slowly uncovering him, first his shoulders, then his chest and upper arms, and on and on as the sheet tumbled to the floor. Oh, she, she had no fingers, Sketch wailed. Behrens watched, simultaneously appalled and fascinated, as, like a conjurer revealing a magic trick, the bedsheet fell away to show Sketch's mutilated, bloody hands. All of his fingers had been torn away at the knuckles. Molly had done her best to bandage Sketch's hands, but the blood still seeped through the dirty rags. Sketch was babbling like a madman now, and thrashing about on the bed whilst Molly tried to hold him down and calm him. Baron slipped quietly from the room, casting one more repulsed glance at the blood-stained pocket knife lying on the wooden floor. He hurried as quickly as he dared down the darkened rickety old stairs, past the woman assembling matchboxes and her two children, and out into the foggy streets, leaving the cries of Bill Sketch behind him. Such a thing as this could not be, Baron's rational mind told him. There had to be an explanation, a normal, down-to-earth explanation, that had nothing to do with ghosts or corpses rising from the grave. Perhaps a visit to the funeral parlour, where Mrs. de Rudson's body was laid out, waiting to be buried again, would ease his troubled mind. After all, if she still lay in her coffin, as he fully expected her to, then that would prove what he already knew. The dead did not rise from their graves to exact revenge upon those that wronged them. A light still burned in the funeral parlour, despite the lateness of the hour, and Behrens was allowed access to see Mrs. de Rudson's body. As the undertaker lifted the lid on the coffin, the inspector felt the same sense of dread and fascination as when Sketch's bedsheets had fallen back to reveal his mutilated hands. At the last moment, Behrens almost called out to the undertaker to stop and to lower the lid, as an awful premonition fell over him that Mr. de Rutson's eyes would be open and staring right at him. The coffin lid opened to its full extent, and Behrens gasped at what he saw before him. It was not the dead lady's eyes staring at him that caused him to recall in horror, for they were closed. No. What the inspector saw there was far worse than anything he had imagined. Mrs. de Rudson lay peacefully in the coffin, dressed in all her jewellery, the jewellery that had been taken from her cold, dead body only days before. 
Her hands were crossed over her chest, ending at her knuckles where Sketch had broken off her fingers one by one. But now Mrs. Derudson had a new set of fingers, one after another lying next to each of those mutilated knuckles. And there were two or three, sometimes even four or five rings, crammed onto each of Bill Sketch's severed fingers. Mrs. Duranson's Jewels was written by Ken Preston and read by Max Carroll Smith. Tall Tales is produced and scored by Aidan Meyer. Our theme music is by Swamp Thing. You can hear more of their work at swoompthing.com. If you've missed any of our stories so far, you can now listen online at mixcloud.com forward slash Brum Radio. I'm Philip Ellis, and you're listening to Brum Radio. Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.